I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of The Woman in Tech Show, a podcast where we talk about what we work on, not what it feels like to be a woman in tech. For more information about the show, go to wit.fm. People that work in tech adapt to new technologies, learn new skills, and can work in different roles throughout their career. Asia Kamsky, principal developer advocate at MongoDB, started her career in the late 80s. We talked about her experience working in software development, systems architect, product management, and most recently in developer advocacy. Asia gave advice about navigating a career in technology. We also talked about her work at MongoDB in measuring the performance of databases. Asia Kamsky, welcome to the Women in Tech show. Thank you very much for having me. You studied computer science at Cornell University and graduated in 1985. A lot has changed in technology since then. Can you describe some things that were significantly different at that time? Well, interestingly enough, the thing that was most different that surprises people when I tell them this is my graduating class, my computer science major graduating class was over one third women. And I just assumed that the ratio would continue rising until it got to, you know, about 50-50, and that would be that. And I was quite shocked to find out that instead the ratio just kept, that the percentage of women kept dropping more and more. And, you know, I'm not sure if that was more about technology or social things, but a lot of my friends have, have had long discussions trying to figure out what exactly was so different that enabled it then. And, of course, we didn't have laptops in our dorm rooms. We had to walk to the computer lab to do our homework. Lots of it was on mainframes. Some of it was on personal computers based on PDP-8 processors, which might sound like gibberish to a lot of our listeners because that's pretty old technology. Of course, we didn't have cell phones either. Can you imagine that? Yeah, that's pretty different than now. Yeah, those were very dark days. Now, I had access to email. I had access to the precursor of what everybody you know thinks of as the internet now because Cornell was on BitNet, which was the network of universities. So, for example, I could send email to some of my friends who were at other universities. But, of course, I had to go to the computer center to log into the terminal to read those emails. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that you know, I got to the point where I actually had a terminal at home with a modem and later a personal computer with a modem that still, you know, dialed up the, some kind of a central system where all the email was. And once you graduated, what was one of your early jobs? So interestingly, I kind of uh, didn't have a, a specialization. I was a big fan of uh, computer graphics, but my first job ended up being in EDA, uh, which is electronic design automation. It's essentially software tools that are used by chip designers for designing and analyzing integrated circuits, uh, semiconductor chips. And like many first jobs, it was like one of those things where, oh, somebody I knew, a friend of mine who graduated the year before I did, had a job there and said, hey, we're hiring. And so I got a job there. It wasn't anything about what I was interested in. It was just somebody I knew worked there and said, hey, this is pretty cool. But, you know, after about a year and a half, I went, no, I want to go back to school. I don't want to work. And I went back to grad school for computer graphics. And then I ended up working 
in databases somehow. It was, again, kind of just one of those happenstance things, and I've been in databases ever since for, gosh, almost 30 years now. When you went back to school for computer graphics, what was sort of the panorama like then? I mean, it was only a few years later than when I graduated uh, undergrad. It was late 80s. Uh, but already, you know, like, um, for example, I had a job while I was getting my master's, and from work I could log into the computers at the school. I was at uh, NYU, New York University. I could log into those computers to do my homework during lunch hour or after, you know, after work hours. So it was already a bit more modern, a little closer to, uh, you know, what we experience now. Throughout your career, you worked in different roles from programming to project management and even from different areas like you were talking about just now. And most recently, you're a developer advocate. What are some of the things that you think about when considering to transition to another role? For me, you know, the situation was, I actually, I talked to a lot of people about this because I want to make sure other people don't make the same mistake that I did. Uh, I was good at programming and I kind of enjoyed it in school, but when I had a job as a developer, I was kind of miserable. I mean, any given day was interesting and I was solving interesting problems, but overall it, it felt, it didn't feel quite satisfying. It didn't feel quite right. But I was under this very wrong misconception that if you're very technical, the only job really that you should be doing is a developer. And if you weren't all that technical, then, you know, you went into maybe technical marketing or management or, you know, worked in the field or something. And turns out that was very, very wrong. And about 15 years ago, so after I'd been working for you know, almost 15 years, I discovered that companies that make very technical products, ones that are sold to developers, need people in the field who are just as technical as any engineer that's developing the product. And I switched. I went to work for a small startup as one of their first field engineers. So I did, you know, pre-sales, post-sales work, consulting, training. And I, I was in seventh heaven because I realized that for me personally, it was much more satisfying to work with people, with our customers, solve problems out in the field. I love to travel. I love to give talks. And so it was a much better fit for my personality, but still allowed me to do work that was extremely technical. And then since then, I realized that, of course, product management, which is kind of the technical ownership of the roadmap, of the planning of what the product, what problems the product, the product has to solve, that's also a very technical role. And in my opinion, to be a really good product manager, you have to understand the product from both directions, from the point of view of the developer, the engineer who's working on that, and from the point of view of a customer, right, the user who is using it and benefiting from new features. If you only have a, a single view, you know, from one direction or the other, it I think leaves too many blind spots and you could essentially be asking for things that are not technically very feasible or worrying too much about implementation details rather than solving customers' problems. So I ended up for many years in product management because it was a really good fit for the combination of, you know, highly technical knowledge and skills, but also the ability and 
wanting to work out in the field with the customers. How does that differ from a developer advocate role? So it actually, in a way, doesn't. So a product manager needs to essentially talk to customers, understand their business pain, understand what challenges they have and what they need help solving, and then come back and explain to engineers what those problems are, but in terms that engineers can figure out how to address in the product. It's essentially translating, you know, the customer says, I need a button to do this, but the product manager says, yes, but why do you want to do this? And the customer says, well, because I have this problem, right? And then we go back and we discuss with engineering, like they have this problem, it's different, you know, a button here could solve it, but maybe there's a better solution, right? And so it's a lot about the customer and how the product can address their pain. A developer advocate, in my mind, and I know there's different kinds of developer advocates, but in my mind, it's somebody who advocates for the developer, right? So it's just kind of like a product manager, but instead of worrying just about customers who are using the product, it worries about everybody, just developers out there who don't even know that maybe that MongoDB exists. So I want to figure out, first of all, how can I help our product and engineering organization improve the product in a way that makes it easier for somebody to use who's never used it. And also, you know, make sure that all of the things that we have that's outbound, right, that all of our training materials or education, all our conferences, that the talks are correct technically and that they give kind of the right impression of the product to the developers externally. Because, I mean, I strongly believe that if you misrepresent what your product can do, it's just going to lead to unhappy customers, right? Maybe you can tell somebody, oh, this product can do everything, and then they try to use it, and it fails. They're going to be like, no, this product stinks, right? Just because you set an incorrect expectation. So maybe a developer advocate in some way is just about setting expectations, but also just like the product manager somebody that tries to get feedback and advocate for our customers and developers internally to the product and the engineering organization. Earlier, you're talking about how you had this thought or idea that because you were very technical, you had to be in this developer job and you did for a few years, you had highly technical roles, but then like you're just describing Product management and developer advocate are also technical roles. Do you have some thoughts around people like you that worked as a developer for several years versus somebody that just comes out of college and steps into a developer advocate role? You know, what I think about that is maybe a little different than what other people say. I'm pretty opinionated in that I think that most successful product managers and most successful developers get their credibility from having been there themselves. So how can you tell developers anything, whether it's how to use a product or how to build a better product, if you haven't yourself been in their shoes, you know? Now, it doesn't mean that somebody has to go and spend 10 years doing, you know, back-end development. Maybe somebody was a developer for a couple of summers as an intern and then maybe worked as a developer for another year. That's probably enough experience for them to get a pretty realistic idea of what 
it's like to be a developer. But I think somebody who's just entry level and wants to come in and, and be a developer advocate, I think it would be harder for them to, to kind of have that credibility. I'm not saying they couldn't, but I think it would be harder for them. I want to talk now for a bit about your work at MongoDB. Like I mentioned earlier, you've been there in various roles. In particular, I would like to talk about your work in measuring performance. I think performance is one of the core areas in building software systems as well as security. There are things that are going to be around for a while. Before we get into that, I wanted to begin with what is MongoDB to provide some context to the listeners. Sure. Well, MongoDB is a database or a data platform. And a database is something that every single software system needs if it persists data. So anywhere where you fill out a form, if that form has to get saved, if the data that you enter has to get saved, it has to be saved in some kind of a data system from which it can later be retrieved. So a database just stores and retrieves data. Now, traditional databases were all relational databases and they used SQL, a structured query language, as the query language. And I actually spent uh, well over a decade working with many different relational databases. But they were never really designed to do the type of thing that current developers need for them to do. They weren't really designed to work with data that's highly varied, right? In general, it was expected that you knew exactly how your data would be structured. And nowadays, if you're collecting, you're mining a lot of data from social media or you're building a system or a catalog for many different types of products, you may want the flexibility to add different attributes on the fly. And MongoDB is in the category of, quote unquote, no SQL databases. That's, uh, they're called document databases. So instead of representing data as a row, so relational databases have rows and columns, a, a row represents a relation of data. In MongoDB, instead of a row, we call it a document. It's really like a, a JSON document. It's represented as binary JSON called BSON. But essentially, it's, it can have any arbitrary number of fields, and each field can be of many different types, including embedded documents, sub-documents, arrays, arrays of documents, and whatever way is more appropriate for a particular application to represent its data. And I kind of feel like where the design of MongoDB was coming from was that developers should focus on writing their application and the database should just persist the objects that the developer is working with. So we use a lot of languages where we have entities represented, you know, essentially sometimes, you know, called objects in object-oriented languages. They could be dictionaries in Python or associative arrays or hashes or classes or whatever. The idea is that if you could just persist them into the database and have a way of accessing them back, whether it be by primary key or by a combination of other fields, that's kind of a database that preserves some of the advantages of traditional SQL databases, but allows you to uh, be much more agile in how fast you can iterate over adding different features to your application. So that was a very, very long explanation. Sorry. It was a really great explanation. So just to recap, you're talking about how it's more flexible in terms of allowing you to put highly varied data. 
you're not using SQL instead of representing data in rows and columns like we do in a relational database we're talking now about a document and this document is one of the core components in MongoDB exactly. and in a database in general we also have this functionality of transactions yep. so in MongoDB we can have multi-document transactions yes we can now can you give an example of when would we use a multi-document transaction? Sure. So in relational databases, because the data has to be tabular, a lot of times a rich complex object would be split up into multiple tables. An example of that might be an order, right? You place an order and you order a certain number of line items, they're called, right? So you order you know, one of these products, two of those products, and one more of some third product. And you have three line items now, and each one of them has you know, different quantities, different products. In a relational database, this has to be stored in two separate tables because an order has a bunch of attributes. But then line items, they don't really fit. There's no way to fit multiple line items into a row that represents orders. So we put them into a separate table and each line item references what order it belongs to and, you know, whether it's the first line item, second line item, third line item. Now to query for a complete order, you have to do a join. And when you're updating an order, usually you might be updating both something about the line items and something about the order overall. So a transaction is essentially a unit of work on the database side that makes sure that multiple writes are all executed together. And transactions have uh, what's referred to as acid properties, atomicity, consistency, isolation, and durability. And basically the database promises that the work will be all or nothing, that no other part of the system will see only part of that transaction completed, that when the transaction is declared successful, it means you're not gonna lose it, so durable means you know, if the system crashes after successful transaction, that transaction will still be there when the, the system comes back up and that your data will be consistent across all of your different tables. Now, for many years, MongoDB didn't support multi-document transactions. And one of the reasons it wasn't a huge uh, missing feature is because MongoDB allows you to create a single document for an order that includes within it an array or a list of line items. So instead of having order and its line items in two different tables, they were in a single document. And in MongoDB, any write to a document is guaranteed to be atomic. In other words, it has all of the ACID properties of a transaction on that single document. So a lot of the work that you would need transactions for in a relational database wasn't necessary. But there are cases where you really want to make sure that two separate writes happening on two different collections in MongoDB are coordinated in such a way that, you know, they're either both happen or neither happens. An example of that might be, you know, I pay for an order. Of course, you want to mark the order paid, but you also want to maybe mark in some payments collection that, you know, that this payment was submitted. And if I have, you know, a balance as a customer, maybe you want to subtract the amount I paid from that balance. And you would like to associate those into a single operation, logically, so that 
if one of them fails, none of them get committed. And if somebody is reading, for example, how much do people owe, that they wouldn't read, you know, an, a kind of a half-updated transaction. So MongoDB added multi-document transactions in version 4.0, which was, I guess, a year and a half ago or so. And this made it essentially so MongoDB is now really the best of both worlds, right? You still have the flexible schema that allows creating document structure that minimizes the need for transactions. However, transactions are available in cases where you want to make multiple writes to separate documents and separate collections that are, you know, logically linked together in your system. And it's, what it can do is simplify a lot the logic for the developer, right? They essentially can group a number of operations together and know that they don't have to worry about checking whether all parts of the operation succeeded. So this is about how transactions are processed, right? Yeah. And when I was researching for this and reading some of your work and one of the papers that you wrote, there's this concept, again, related to transactions, which is OLTP, Online Transaction Processing. Can you describe this a little more? Yeah, I laugh because, you know, in databases or in computer science in general, we sometimes tend to overload terms so that it becomes very hard to tell whether we're referring to a generic form of the word or a specific technical term. So for example, OLTP tends to be used to mean online systems to contrast with offline systems. So an online system is where things are being processed in real time, not to be confused with real-time systems. So for example, if you're placing an order you want to immediately see a response that says, your order is placed. These things that you put in your shopping cart, they're now yours, right? And offline or batch processing is somebody who works at a retailer saying, okay, I would like to run a report for yesterday or for last week or for last month. How many people that browse this category ended up buying one of these type of items? And that's something that might run longer. And it's referred to as OLAP or online analytic product processing as opposed to transactional. So online transactional processing tends to refer to, rather than database transactions, operations that are transactions, right? I click a button, I place an order, I pay my bill, right? That, those are all transactional interactions with the system, as opposed to the analytic type things where I say, you know, I would like to see a report, and it can run for a minute, and that's okay, because I go, I'll see the results when it's done. But can you imagine if you were browsing a website and you clicked something and it took a minute to respond? You probably would never return back to that store again or that website, right? So OLTP tends to mean kind of like transactional interactive type of processing of operations. And performance, you know, because uh, I know the whole thing is, was really about testing performance and benchmarking performance, it's very important to know well, actually, not just the benchmarking, I guess when building applications, even when designing applications or when creating requirements, one of the most important thing is to know how fast, how performant does the system have to be? Because 
you know, as a product manager or a product designer, if I come to engineering and I say, I want you to build me, you know, an online store or a Twitter-like system or, or a social network system, and I never specify that, you know, these interactions with the system must return in under 100 milliseconds, and those operations must happen within 300 milliseconds, and some other operations maybe only need to happen within a few seconds or something like that, right? If I don't specify that, then when they're done building the system, I can't very well complain that this is not fast enough because I didn't tell them what I expected as a business owner, right? And so a lot of times, you know, benchmarking in isolation or saying this application is fast or it's not fast is not very useful, right? It only really makes sense in the context of the business expectations, right? Just like if you say, well, how fast is this car? You know, if we're talking about driving it on the highway, you know, it only needs to go so fast. But if you want to drive it on the racetrack, it probably needs to be able to go a lot faster, right? Yes, exactly. And you're talking about how it is important to establish this baseline, this benchmark. In the context of a database or MongoDB, how would you go about determining a benchmark? For example, what are some numbers that you can look at and you know define? I think there's kind of two parts to it, right? One of them is you have to very clearly define what is the workload. Right, because if you tune the system to have incredibly fast reads, but it turns out that the, your users expected fast response to writes, you know, you failed just like if you did it the other way around, right? So it's important in every system to know which operations have to be the fastest because it's easier to tune, you know, uh, it's like they say nothing is free, right? So if you want to have faster reads in a database, you add indexes, right? They allow fast lookup of data, but having more indexes means your writes have to do more work. So you want to keep that balance and know what's most important, right? In relational systems, because they've been around for such a long time, and because they were all similar in that they all supported relational tables and structured query language that was the same, there was a, essentially a committee that formed that created a lot of standard benchmarks, each one of which was supposed to represent a different type of typical workload. So, for example, the, the one that I used for the paper that I wrote for VLDB uh, used TPCC. Now, they, they named their benchmarks, you know, letters. So the first one was TPCA, the second one was TPCB, TPCC, and on and on down the alphabet. And TPCC is actually one of the more enduring ones because the workload was meant to represent a commerce type of operation. And they defined what percent of operations would be placing of new orders and what percent of operations would be delivery of orders and what percent of operations would be a user checking status of their order. And for each type of operation, they specified completely what type of, you know, what was the range of parameters of data that has to be passed to that function and exactly what that function must do. And now if two databases published, oh, we, and there were also rules about, you know, correctness checking, 
and that it satisfied all of the database transactional properties. And so now if somebody published saying, okay, we can do, you know, 12 bazillions of, you know, certain types of combination of transactions on this benchmark. So that was one metric that, you know, you could get certified. And there was like a committee that I guess there were rules about how to get things certified. But also there was a second number, which was the number of those transactions divided by the cost of the servers that it took to achieve it. And that brings it back around to how fast you need something to be. It kind of, it, you know, any speed is possible if you spend enough money, right? If somebody wants a car that goes, you know, 200 miles an hour and gets good gas mileage and is cheap, that's not possible, right? They're gonna have to give up one of those. So it's the same thing here. And one of the things that I discovered is you know, we wanted to use, to find some standard benchmarks that other people had been using for a long time and understood well, and use that to test our own multi-document transactions. First of all, to check, you know, if the performance seemed to be, quote unquote, good enough, right? But second of all, we would then be able to use that in our continuous integration system so that we could notice if the performance dropped or if performance unexpectedly got better. These are all things that are you know, worthy of following up if they're unexpected. And in the process, I realized that there were a lot of things about a traditional relational benchmark that didn't quite fit the document model, and it definitely didn't fit the cloud model. And that's because there was this assumption that you're doing all this work on a single physical server. Uh, even the way of measuring the score, if you get a certain number of transactions, dividing it by the cost of the server makes a lot less sense when you're paying for your server, you know, $1.65 an hour, right? <laughs> Instead of, oh, I just paid $5,000 and that's it. It's mine outright, you know? Yeah, so it sounds like a lot of it involves taking a step back and really thinking, what is a system supposed to do, what are users expecting and making sure to align the measurements and the optimizations around that, right? Exactly, exactly. And one of the things that we always try to communicate to users, you know, they ask us, they go, well, do you have any benchmarks to show how you compare to some other system? And we go, no, because we don't know exactly what type of workload you want. And we always tell people that the only way to know which one will perform better on a particular workload is to try it. And unfortunately, people think that that's a massive amount of work. And it's really not because, you know, a flexible schema database where you don't have to spend time trying to figure out the schema, you can write pretty quick kind of a one-off test, seeing what the performance would be on particular type of operations generating documents that seem similar to what you know you imagine the actual application would be using and of course with the cloud it's very easy to just provision a system of a certain size benchmark that and then try the same workload on a bigger system right and see where where the bang for the buck is the best you know yes exactly the last thing i like to ask uh, people that come on the show is if they have some general advice for professionals in terms of 
career or life, just any insights that you would like to share with them? Sure. I think the most important one I already mentioned, which is, you know, trust your gut in terms of what job feels right. It doesn't matter if you're a phenomenal programmer. If you don't enjoy doing it day to day, it's probably not a great long-term career for you. Same thing for, you know, you might be good at, let's say, doing presentations or uh, teaching people things, but if you don't also enjoy it, you know, I always feel like the best career is one that's the closest to the intersection of things you're good at and things you enjoy and things that somebody's willing to pay you to do, right? Because <laughs> we might enjoy some things that we're very good at, but maybe there's no market for getting paid, you know, to play games or goof around somehow. But somewhere between those three axes, and I think that those of us in technology are so superbly lucky because there's so many companies out there that will need software engineers and technologists, techies in general, for, for, the, for the foreseeable future, really. So the key is to find the part of that domain that has that intersection of, you know, enjoying your work day to day and getting paid for. That's kind of the dream, right? Yes, exactly. You got to be realistic, but also leverage things that you like to do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that I would, that I would say is that I hope people aren't afraid to try different things. One of the things I love about MongoDB is I see our new grad program. So we hire new graduates and rather than starting with a particular group, they go on a rotation where they spend, I think, four weeks or six weeks. It's changed in the past, but they spend some period of time working on a one team. Then they rotate to a different team. Then they rotate to a third team, and then they pick where they want to you know, work after that, which, of course, doesn't mean that they're stuck working there for the next N years. You know, after a year or two, I know a lot of people decide that they want to move to a different team, but I feel like like I didn't get that at my first job. And it kind of gave me that angst about, well, like, what's it like over there? What if that's more fun than what I'm doing, you know? And I think that if you create a situation where you get to try more things before you decide, like on a longer term plan, and by longer term, I mean, you know, three to five years, I think everybody should evaluate what they're working on every three to five years. So that's pretty much my advice. Well, Asia, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure.